As of our year of the Lord, 2020, uh, Disney is a monopolistic oligarch, but in the not-too-recent past, it things were different. The nadir of Disney was arguably the failure of 1985's The Black Cauldron, which was the most expensive animated film created up to that point that had went through multiple creative teams and years of development. Everyone from John Lasseter to Tim Burton was attached to it at some point or another. After that film uh, underperformed, Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg, who were both in charge of Disney at the time, uh, briefly considered shutting down Disney's animation wing, which seems unthinkable today. Uh, after a crash course in Disney history, Katzenberg decided that um, animated films were uh, an important aspect of Disney's brand identity, but he wanted them to be made on his terms. For one thing, the budgets were slashed considerably. Secondly, the song numbers borrowed more heavily from Andrew Lloyd Webber, who at the time was basically ruling musical theater with Cats, Phantom of the Opera, and so on. And more noticeably, he wanted the films to have a tight three-act structure. Up until 1985, Disney animated films, and by extension most animated films, were created by teams who worked on individual scenes without consulting each other about story details. Kind of like the animated shorts, except 90 minutes long instead of five. This is impossible to ignore after you know this. It kind of works in something like, say, Snow White or Cinderella, where the stories are really simple and everybody knows them to a point. And it also kind of works with something like Alice in Wonderland, where you it's extremely episodic and you can do scenes out of order without changing the narrative flow. However, for something like The Black Cauldron, it just didn't work at all. The first film made under these new uh, parameters was 1989's The Little Mermaid, which was a big smash hit that put Disney back into prominence. This kicks off what a lot of nerds refer to as the Disney Renaissance. However, the peak of the Disney Renaissance was 1994's The Lion King. It was, by a very wide margin, the most successful film in the Disney Renaissance. Uh, it had a $45 million budget, which was fairly modest, even by the standards of its time. It made $968.5 million, which is at least 400 more than the next most popular film in the Disney Renaissance. Today we'll be breaking down The Lion King, and by extension the Disney Renaissance in, in general. We're going to be cutting this film apart, looking at it piece by piece and how it's put together, and exploring why it became as successful as it was, and why this ended up being the peak of the Disney Renaissance, both as a commercial entity and in some capacity as a critical one. My name is Ryan, uh, this is A Real Deep Dive. Joining me on this episode is my uh, little sister Sarah, say hello. Hi guys! You were, I think, five years old when this movie came out? Yeah. So you're right smack dab in this really, like, laser-focused target demo. Oh, primates. Yeah, yeah. And, and then very, very susceptible to what it did, and uh, this is your favorite Disney film, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, which, it worked. Which puts it in solid running for favorite of all time, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely probably my favorite animated movie of all time. Absolutely. It's got the best villain song. It's got... I mean, in general, just the my, my favorite soundtrack. It's got some really fun characters, some really fun twists. I could watch it a hundred times and love it more and more. Yeah, it's because of uh, scheduling issues. Usually I try to um, like rewatch the film shortly before recording these episodes, but we couldn't really find a, a, an evening to, to squeeze it in. And well, we've both seen this movie like a jillion times, so it, it, I, I wouldn't consider it that important. No, 
No, uh, for for a frame of reference, when they uh, were still doing the whole vault thing, and they took the Lion King out of the vault and released it for the, I think, like, 25th anniversary or something like that. Maybe the 20th anniversary. Yeah, because the 25th anniversary would be around now and... I'm, yeah, no, it was the 20th anniversary. Um, I pre-ordered it at the Disney store with very, very little poking from the sales associate. And uh, I pretended that I bought that movie for my then, you know, four-year-old child. No, I bought that for me. It was not for my son. It was for me. He watched it a lot because I put it on. But no, that was that was a that was a purchase for me. Okay, before we start going into production details and thematic undercurrents of the film, I'm going to do a brief recap of the plot. This might not be wholly necessary. Oh, I can just sum it up right now. Yeah, I have a hard time believing too many people who are listening to this are completely unfamiliar with the plot of The Lion King. It's Hamlet. We will be getting into that. Uh, Put a pin in that. Yep, it's Hamlet with lions, but go ahead. Okay, the opening scene, which is by far the most iconic and most frequently parodied, is uh, all of the uh, animals gathering under Pride Rock, which is in the African savannah, to watch Rafiki, a um, shaman mandrill, present uh, Simba to uh, them as they bow down in earnest. Because in this universe, the lions rule over all of the other animals in some kind of monarchist arrangement. It's worded fairly vaguely, just enough to make it work for a kid's movie. So Simba is the heir apparent. However, the king's brother, Scar, covets the throne, and he forms a pact with the hyenas in order to usurp it. The next important scene is Mufasa, the father, explaining to Simba about the circle of life. This is the idea that all creatures are interconnected and everybody needs each other and everybody feeds into each other. Except the hyenas. Fuck them. It's true. The hyenas suck. They're not part of the circle of life. Banish them. Anyways, shortly after that, Simba and his playmate Nala are tricked by Scar into exploring the elephant graveyard, despite the fact that Mufasa, you know, explicitly told Simba not to go there. They are ambushed by the hyenas and rescued by Mufasa, who is naturally very cross with Simba but for disobeying them. However, Simba seems genuinely apologetic and Mufasa forgives him and then allows that to dovetail into an explanation as to how all of his uh, kingly ancestors are watching over him from the sky. This is what we in the drama industry call foreshadowing. Okay, the next important scene is Scar luring Simba into a gorge where the hyenas then uh, trigger a wildebeest stampede. And any child that was alive in the 90s is uh, quietly crying right now. Yeah, Mufasa manages to rescue Simba, but in the course of it is uh, left dangling off a precipice. Scar takes advantage of this by killing Mufasa. Simba survives the wildebeest stampede, but Scar turns this to uh, his advantage by taking advantage of Simba's guilt and guiling him into fleeing in disgrace. Now, he expects Simba uh, to die in the desert, which he almost does, but he is rescued by Timon and Pumbaa, who are a uh, warthog and a meerkat. He grows to maturity in the jungle with his friends under the carefree mantra of uh, Hakuna Matata, which uh, I have found out is actually a Swahili phrase. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's not just a song. It actually means no worries. <laughs> okay, flash forward a bit. Simba has aged from Jonathan Taylor Thomas to Matthew Broderick. And an adult Nala is about to devour Timon and Pumbaa, but Simba rescues them and then uh, recognizes Nala. She has gone so deep into the jungle because under Scar's rule, in conjunction with the hyenas, Pride Rock has become a drought-filled wasteland because this is a Disney film and if bad people are in charge, the weather turns bad. And everything's lime green. Yes, everything's lime green. A couple of years before The Matrix, they decided to take advantage of that. All right, uh, Nala and... Simba are adults with adult feelings. But in addition to that, Nala is try, uh, tries to convince Simba to uh, return home to Pride Rock and claim his rightful spot on the throne. However, Simba still feels survivor's guilt over Mufasa's death, and he's also terrified of the responsibility. This leads to an encounter with Rafiki, the aforementioned sh- uh, shamanistic mandrill. He gives Simba some advice and... Hits al- him on the head with a stick. Hits by hitting him on the head with a stick. This ultimately leads to a vision quest where Simba speaks to his father's spirit in the clouds. Darth Vader. Yeah, yeah, we we got that. At this point, Simba realizes that he can no longer run from his past, and he returns to Pride Rock. With Timon and Pumbaa's help, Simba sneaks past the hyenas for a showdown with Scar. This uh, initially doesn't go well because Scar uses uh, Simba's guilt over Mufasa's death to manipulate him into losing the fight. However, Scar's hubris comes into circle when, just as he's on the cusp of victory, he admits to Simba that he is directly responsible for Mufasa's uh, fatal accident. Simba then overpowers Scar in just heroic rage. This leads to Scar begging for mercy from Simba and uh, trying to pin the blame on all of these shenanigans on the hyenas, which the hyenas over here. Simba tries to banish Scar from uh, Pride Rock, but then Scar takes the first opportunity to try to stab Simba in the back. Simba throws Scar uh, off a precipice into the pit of the hyenas, who then eat him. After Simba regains his throne in a very stately scene where he ascends the summit of Pride Rock and lets out a mighty roar, the kingdom magically becomes capable of supporting life again. And the film ends as it begins with Simba and Nala entrusting Rafiki to present their child to the animals, and thus the circle of life is complete. The balance doesn't include hyenas. Fuck them. Yeah. They're not part of anything. (laughs) They fulfill no role in this circle of life. The circle of life here and the hyenas are over there. (laughs) The hyenas are not in the superverse. They should be with Harley. (laughs) End of story. Yeah, Pride Rock doesn't have scavengers. Okay. (laughs) Put a pin in that. We will be getting back to it. (laughs) All right, let's start off with the production, which was uh, actually a lot more involved than uh, one would think uh, gauging on the final results. Uh, The germ of the idea came from Katzenberg, Roy Disney, and Peter Schneider, uh, who were um, on a promotional tour of Oliver and Company. If you know anything about your Disney history, that means that it took a long time for this film to actually get made. Yeah, Oliver and Company is, what, 84, 85? Yeah, I think it's a few years after that, but yeah, around then. It's it's late 80s, early 90s at the very least. There are 18 credited writers on this film. 18? 18. Okay, so it took 18 dudes, I'm assuming, because it's the 90s, so they were probably all men. There are a few women. I will be getting into that. Okay, it took 18 to take... Kimba the Lion, 
and Hamlet and give us this? Uh, yes, uh, I, I looked at previous incarnations of the uh, of the screenplay. The first one involves a uh, war in the jungle between lions and baboons, and Rafiki was supposed to be a cheetah. So this film went through a lot of uh, metamorphoses before it became the version that we saw in theaters. Okay. It also took a long time for a core theme to develop. The final draft was by uh, Irene Mechie, Jonathan Roberts, and uh, Linda Wolverton. Wolverton is the first woman to be a credited writer on a Disney film. She came on for Beauty and the Beast. She was asked to save this film. Oh, good for her. A lot of people considered Lion King to be something of a risk because it wasn't based on like a folk story or a fairy tale. It is an original story, asterisk. I, I, uh, okay. <laughs> Put a pin in it. It was made at the same time as Pocahontas, and they thought Pocahontas was going to be the big hit. Did they come out the same year? Uh, they were made the same year. Pocahontas came out the following year. Okay, yeah, because I, I mean, and Pocahontas was not a big hit. No, no, it wasn't. I think it made a profit, but it wasn't Lion King big. And uh, yeah, this film was constantly being revised up to and including the period where they were actually animating it. While they were coming up with story notes for it, uh, they were using Tim Rice's lyrics for the songs as sort of jumping off points. So a lot of the scenes started off as the songs and they were just like, okay, we're going to work around this. Which, once again, I don't think is readily evident just on watching the film. No, I mean, all of the Disney Renaissance films have that tight three-act structure that I mentioned before, and this one's no exception. No, it works. And I, I think most of it's the thematic currents, um, you know, survivor's guilt, running away from one's responsibility, the circle of life. They're spelled out very plainly to the target audience of six-year-olds, uh, about as starkly as one can get without overly beating you over the head with it. I had no idea that there were like dozens of cooks in the kitchen because usually films like that are like a mess, like Suicide Squad. Right, right. The animators repeatedly observed live animals, which isn't something that a Disney production had done since Bambi. They wanted the characters in the film to act like actual animals. Uh, there is some anthropomorphic aspects in their facial expressions. We will be contrasting that with the 2019 CGI remake of The Lion King, which does not have that. Put a pin in it. <laughs> and, uh, at the same time, they're four-legged animals who move and walk like four-legged animals, at least by the standards of 2D animation, which was also considered unorthodox by Disney people at the time. I actually, I have vague memories of watching some kind of special that was either on TV or like we got a, we, it was maybe like a special feature on our cassette version of it, our VHS version of it, where they showed the animators like drawing lions moving around. Like, I, I don't know where I saw it. It's such a vague, because I was so little, it was such a vague memory, but I do remember seeing that. Yeah, that was some kind of like teasing preview on, uh, I think, the Beauty and the Beast VHS we had as a kid. Oh, okay, that's Yeah, I, I, I rewatched it on YouTube in preparation for this video, and uh, yeah, I was like, oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's, uh, let's get into the casting. Uh, James Earl Jones was cast first. That makes sense. Yeah, uh, they thought that... Voice. Yeah, they thought that his low, booming voice sort of had, like, one's mental impression of a lion roar. Which, um, as you mentioned just before we recorded, uh, lions don't actually sound like they do in this film. No, they do not. Uh, fun tidbit of information for all of you people, and I'm sure that you've probably seen this one going around online. 
uh, how they made the lion roar sounds, um, they they sort of combined it with the sound of a tiger. And, and as Ryan said right before we recorded, tigers are fucking loud. They're real loud. But they also took trash can lids and smashed them together. And that is where the lion roar comes from. Because a lion actually roaring is pretty quiet. Like Ryan said before we started recording, lions are pretty big. They don't need to be loud. They can just cut you down. Yeah, after that, um, Nathan Lane came on. Uh, believe it or not, he auditioned for Zazu. Mm. For those of you, if it's been a while, Zazu is is a little bird guy that's sort of like is um, Mufasa's concierge. Yeah, in the in the 2019 remake, it's uh, John Oliver, yeah. um, and that works pretty well. I, who is it in in the in the original? I I forget his name. I forget his name, but it's a very like prim proper British. Sound. Yeah, he's basically the uh, the dowager who just goes, well, I never. Yeah. Actually, I think he literally says, well, I never at least he, once. Yes, yeah. That it, wouldn't it, have worked for Nathan Lane. Yeah, I, yeah I, have a, I have a hard time imagining Nathan Lane as any other character besides, you know, Timon. Yeah, yeah. He, he sort of revels in that part. He, I mean, he's one, of, he's one of modern cinema's biggest hams. He really likes to choose scenery, and it's impressive that he chews scenery as an animated meerkat. And he seems to love doing it. Like, whenever they bring those characters back, Nathan Lane is there. 100%. Lion King, one half. Great movie, guys. You haven't seen it and you have Disney Plus, go watch it. It's fantastic. We will be discussing spinoffs and sequels and uh, the CGI remake later on. It took a while for Jeremy Irons to be nailed down as Scar. Oddly enough, Tim Curry auditioned, which I could see that working. That would work, yeah. The smoke monster from Ferngully. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah, that would have uh, been fine. Also, Malcolm McDowell uh, auditioned. Ooh, I don't know how I feel about that one. I, I mean, he's got the right voice. And he'd be creepy as hell. I just don't know if he'd be the right creepy as hell. You're right. Yeah, like it's because Scar is creepy, right? But he's not like he's not that that kind of creepy. He's a very specific kind of creepy. He doesn't make your like you don't go like ugh. You're just like. You don't trust that man. Yeah, when I think of Malcolm McDowell, I think of Alex from A Clockwork Orange and then Caligula. Right, and that's not Scar. Scar <laughs> is just a conniving motherfucker. However, it should be noted that Scar's um, dialogue was very different before Jeremy Irons got the part. Apparently, while he was reading his lines, the producers liked him so much that they started rewriting dialogue in order to suit what they thought his strengths were. Good, because we got my favorite Disney villain ever. I'll have to practice my curtsy. Yeah. Yeah, that that was post Jeremy Irons getting the part. Yeah, yes. That's I can see all of that and that's fine. Okay, moving on to uh, the music. I read a lot of 1994 era reviews of this film, and most of them were very positive. Uh, one weird outlier was a person who thought that the film was fine, but that the songs weren't terribly memorable. <laughs> I bet they feel like a real fucking idiot now. <laughs> yeah, because I, I mean, I I think that out of all the Disney Renaissance films, the Lion King has the most insidious earworms. Like, like, like the the first drummer of the Beatles who left the band. <laughs> oh, Pete Best, he was fired. Well, I know, but still, like, you feel like an asshole now, don't you? <laughs> Tim Rice was on to do the lyrics early on. Like I said, they wrote a lot of the scenes around his lyrics. Mm -hmm. In terms of collaborators, it took a while for him to find somebody. He initially wanted to work with Alan Menken, who uh, he collaborated with on Aladdin, but Menken wasn't available. Next, he approached members of ABBA. That would have made for a very different sound. Yeah, so um, Elton John was the third choice. Wow. I mean, 
I guess I can see it. Yeah, I mean, it had been a few years since Elton John had had a huge hit. Yeah. I think at this point we have we have come to the conclusion that you can never count Elton John out. Right. Like, even though he's like mid-retirement tour as we're recording this, he might get another number one. Who knows? Right. It's Elton John. Hans Zimmer was uh, hired to compose the score based on his work of uh, The Power of One and The World Apart, which were both set in Africa. Now, uh, these days, Hans Zimmer is mostly known for um, adding simplistic French horn lines to superhero movies, but there is more to his uh, composition than... Like, uh, I, I think it's one of his finest moments as a composer, period, is the final scene that I mentioned before of Simba ascending Pride Rock and letting out the roar. The the King of Pride Rock motif that he composed for it, it just works. It's beautiful. It, yeah, it, it crushes that scene. That might be childhood nostalgia uh, influencing me, uh, because, I mean, that felt super, super powerful when I was like, you know, nine. But I think it holds up just fine. Just as good as Blomp. Yep. There were, however, some uh, traditional African folk music motifs and some choir arrangements that were beyond Zimmer's capabilities. Those were all arranged by a South African composer named uh, Lebo B. He has a whole bunch of credits, but Lion King is his biggest one. Hmm, that's good. I mean, it's, it's good that they got somebody actually from Africa to do it and didn't just try and dick around and do it themselves. Zimmer felt really self-conscious he uh, about it because, you know, he's, he's German. He, he didn't want to feel like he was appropriating someone's culture or that he was an interloper or that he might put his foot in his mouth and, and take a limited understanding of African music and um, just botch it. That being said, the man probably knows more about African music than most white people, mm-hmm. at least through virtue of working on this film. Yeah. I think I, I think his uh, his stuff blends very well with the Let Will Be material. Yeah, they do a great job. I think this is as good as point as any for you to uh, talk about your favorite musical tidbit about this. Oh yes, so my favorite bit of musical trivia about The Lion King is that that really memorable opening scene that everyone sort of botches because nobody knows what the actual Swahili words are when they're just like ah, yeah, you know, um, what they're saying. In that scene, what it means in Swahili is, hey, it's a lion. Hey, it's a lion. So it's basically just someone yelling, hey, look, guys, it's a lion for like a minute to a sunrise. Yeah, I think in a post-listical social media world that um, that trivia is a little more like widely understood, but I occasionally run into people who are still surprised by it. Oh yeah, there are memes of it all over the internet now, but like when I first heard that bit of trivia, I was like, that's the best thing I've ever heard in my life. It's something that for the last 20 some odd years, I've heard people do terrible impressions of because... The Lion King's music has been everywhere. And to think that it's literally just the Swahili words for, hey guys, it's a lion. If you'd approached me uh, five years ago and asked me what I thought they were talking about, I was like, I assumed it was some kind of like new agey spiritual gobbledygook about the circle of life or whatever. Because it leads right into the circle of life song. But now it's just, hey, hey, it's a movie about a lion, guys. Hey, look, it's a lion. Let's uh, let's get into the themes of the film. Uh, First off, comparisons to Hamlet, which are inevitable at this point. Mm-hmm. As a millennial, when I got to high school age and they were, you know, teaching a Shakespeare, every English teacher I ran into uh, tried to teach Hamlet as a, hey, you've already seen The Lion King, you know how this goes. 
And that's because it's true. It's it's not a direct copy. Um, like for example, in Hamlet, Hamlet's mom is in on it. In The Lion King, Sarabi is so fucking not in on it. She's the opposite of in on it. She's fucking pissed. In Hamlet, you know, his mom is conspiring behind his dad's back with, you know, her brother-in-law. But yeah, I'd say that's probably the biggest difference between the two. The screenwriters of The Lion King did cite Hamlet as conscious influence when they didn't know what kind of story that they actually wanted The Lion King to be. They used Hamlet as a template. That being said, I think only Act 3 is Hamlet. Like, Hamlet opens with talking to Ghost Dad and then Quest for Vengeance. That's true. Hamlet fucking around with uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. He's, like, wrapping that up as Hamlet begins. Right, that, that all happens off screen. But yeah, off stage rather. Yeah, yeah, the parallels are pretty clear. You know, uh, fraternal regicide, the ghost dad, Timon and Pumbaa being you know analogs for uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. You know, it, it, it tracks. And uh, if someone is super familiar with The Lion King and they don't know anything about Hamlet, it's a decent segue into it. Mm-hmm. However, another thing that they explicitly cite as an influence on The Lion King would be the Book of Exodus and the Ten Commandments film. Okay. I I think that's a that, that that's reaching a little more. I mean, you can sort of see Moses in in the in the whole like line as Messiah thing, and like Simba's clearly an anointed one. Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose I suppose Ghost Dad in the sky is analogous to a burning bush. Yeah, that's a stretch. Like I said it's a bit of a stretch. I think it's more of a tonal thing than otherwise. Mm. I mean, once you say, oh, yeah, this does kind of have this, like, larger-than-life cinematic spectacle aspect of it, which is kind of like The Ten Commandments, which takes itself extremely seriously, even when it's an incredibly goofy film. I mean, to be fair, I haven't seen all of The Ten Commandments. I've seen bits and pieces here and there. Yeah, it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to line up as directly for me as Hamlet does. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's literal plot points. Like, it, it has that Cecil B. DeMille grandeur to it, I think. However, there is also another one that the creative team does not cite as an influence that Which everyone I else does. Yep. Yeah, that would be the 1960 Osama Suzuka anime, Kimba the White Lion. If you are familiar with Kimba the White Lion, I don't need to tell you how close it resembles uh, the storytelling of the Lion King. It is not hard to find analogs between the Kimba characters and the Lion King characters. Also, Kimbas and Simba basically have the same name. You know, a seventh grade student writing a paper and they take it from their friend and just change one line and hope that you don't notice. I'd say the rusty dagger in this is that when Matthew Broderick signed on to voice Simba, he thought he was being in a Kimba the White Lion remake. Oh, there it is. There have been rumors from the film's release that uh, Suzuka's uh, estate and production company were paid hush money by Disney to not sue them. The company denied this. However, they did say that they never bothered to sue Disney because Disney is a much larger company who would drag this out in court for years and they couldn't afford it. Yeah, Disney has the money. That being said, the premiere of Lion King did draw protests in Japan. About 488 Japanese animators signed a petition denouncing Disney for plagiarism. Uh, Which is kind of interesting considering that tidbit of information you told me about 
where the, uh, you know, like the big anime eyes came from. Yes, I was just about to get into that. Osama Suzuka, for those of you who aren't familiar, is nicknamed the god of manga uh, by Japanese people, sometimes the god of anime. He wasn't the first to do either, but he did make it into a big international industry. And a lot of things that he introduced in his creations, most notably Astro Boy, sort of became aesthetic standards for the medium of both comic books and, and animation in Japan, most notably anime eyes, those big expressive doe eyes that are in you know so many so uh, so many animes. Suzuka was a huge Disney nerd. He was influenced by uh, Disney films in a number of ways that it's difficult to quantify exactly. Uh, his favorite film was Bambi, which he saw in theaters at least two hundred times. Which is impressive. I don't know who has the time to see that movie that many times, but apparently he did. The eyes in Astro Boy and his various other characters are modeled after the eyes in Bambi. Which is really obvious once somebody tells you, but it's not something that you would think of. Like, the second you told me that, I went, oh yeah, yeah they are. Yep, those are Bambi eyes. And uh, once again, Suzuka probably didn't invent anime eyes, but he popularized it. Yeah. Like, that became the anime look because Suzuka did it. One other thing uh, I wanted to get into, uh, I, I'm sure this will come up again and again once I do other Disney Renaissance films, but basically every villain in the in the Disney Renaissance is coded gay. Super gay. Yes. So gay. Scar more than most. Scar is, he's like, He's not as much of a drag queen as Ursula is, right? Mm -hmm. But he is, the, just the way that he moves around the screen, because they all move like cats, right? Like, they all move like big lions. But Scar is even more slinky, and, like, it's like he's walking down a catwalk. Like, picture one of the, like, models on RuPaul's Drag Race, like, doing their, their you know, like, lip sync for your life. And that's essentially the way Scar just moves. Yeah, I'm trying to avoid using the word swishy. Yeah, yeah, he just sashays. Yeah, he has a he has a sauntering sachet to it. And um, I, I don't want to delve too much into this because uh, Lindsay Ellis did a really fantastic video about gay coding in cinema using the Disney Renaissance as the central template, uh, which I would encourage looking up. But one thing that she points out that is emblematic of the coded gay villain from the Hayes Code onwards is that in most cases, the people who created the villains this way probably weren't consciously thinking of it. They were just trying to find somebody who was just like an obvious shorthand as a contrast to the hero. If the hero is strong and and compassionate yet traditionally masculine it it, it helps just give uh, an immediate impression to the audience to have the antagonist be somebody who is a little fey and feminine and a little off and this started out with uh, screenwriters wanting to give off the impression that the villain is gay, but they're not being allowed to actually literally say it because of the Hayes codes that are just like, oh, let's have him uh, embody 13 or 14 of the stereotypes and the people in the back will get the idea. Mm -hmm. And this has led a generation of millennials being hot for supervillains. Yes. Yep. Because, you know, at the same time, the, if the hero is bold and strong and uh, generically compassionate, in a lot of instances, they're also kind of boring. Simba is definitely my least favorite character in the movie. And you're supposed to, like, really care about Simba. You know, you care about his journey and you want him to survive and all that, you know, whatever. But he's just kind of meh. I uh, I want to build some uh, parallels to uh, 80 Saturday morning cartoons in this instance. 
I, in my uh, My Little Pony video with Sylvan, I discussed how uh, Reagan-era deregulation made it possible to turn, you know, cartoons at that time into thinly-veiled toy commercials. Uh, that isn't to say that regulation ceased entirely. Part of uh, television animation that everybody had to adhere to during that time period is that the heroes had to embody proper family values, which means you had a hard time making them into dynamic, interesting characters. However, the bad guy could be as campy and goofy and get all the wacky, great lines that you wanted to give them, which is why He-Man is boring as shit and Skeletor rules the internet now. Oh, the Skeletor memes. Oh, I love them. And I think that kind of translates to Disney <laughs> villains because I think there's a lot of commonality between, you know, Shredder and Cobra Commander and Skeletor and Mumra and Ursula, Scar, Jafar, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that works. Yeah, and uh, before we move on, I'd like to talk about the hyenas for a bit. Oh, I love the hyenas so much. I know that some people probably find them annoying now. Um, and I will say this. I won't delve too much into my opinions of the 2019 remake, but they were probably my favorite part of the 2019 remake. They did a really good job with the hyenas in that one. Um, but the hyenas are fantastic. They are really good they're, they're just comedic relief. I mean, one of them is voiced by Whoopi Goldberg, so and she was, like, riding high in the early 90s. So... I mean, yeah, this is after, like, she won an Oscar for Ghost, and she was in Sister Act, and she was on Star Trek. This is about uh, when Whoopi was about as popular as she ever was. Right, this is her peak. And so she's... And she's hilarious. Hilarious. Especially to a five-year-old who thinks they get all of the jokes that she's making. Because... That's the thing. The hyenas, most of the jokes that they were making are for the adults. Uh, yeah, uh, one aspect of Whoopi Goldberg that always sticks out for me is that um, she uh, she owns a bar in Gloucester. And every now and again, whenever she's around uh, in this neck of the woods, she'll tend bar one night. And, really? Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, every, every person I know who's been there while she was there is just like, yeah, she's just never-ending barrage of dick jokes. <laughs> That tracks. <laughs> yes, it does. That's very whoopy. <laughs> there is one hyena who's a little troublesome, I guess, in the current political landscape. Um, Ed, he's, you know, when I was a kid, I just called him dumb. He's very clearly supposed to have some kind of, like, you know, mental retardation or learning disability or something. His eyes are all screwy and his tongue hangs out of his mouth um, for most of the movie. And he does really stupid shit. It's his fault that Simba gets away and they don't kill him. And they're just like, oh, he'll just die in the desert and he'll be fine and we don't have to tell Scar and who cares. And then, you know, obviously that comes back and bites him in the ass. But yeah, he's he's a little they had to they had to update that a little bit for the for the 2019 remake. And because in today's culture that that wouldn't fly. That uh, that sets me up for um the hyenas got complaints even when the film was released. Oh, did they? Uh, yes. That's uh, not surprising. Yeah, a lot of people felt that they sort of embodied lazy ethnic stereotypes. Because while James Earl Jones is black, everyone else is white except for, you know, the hyenas. And they're the only ones that, like, act with any kind of non-white people uh, composure. And sometimes, in some instances, some people thought that they went a little over the top, which I don't think is entirely fair. No. Like, Cheech Marin has been basically been playing, like, um, stereotypical Mexican caricature for the entirety of his career. I don't think it's my place to say if that was proper of him or not. Mm. 
I tend to think that Cheech Marin is funny in moderate doses. Yeah. I think his song about cheese, uh, cheeseburgers with Tommy Chong is pretty funny. I mean, most of the complaints I read were from well-intentioned white people. Uh, well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, I, question. Was there anybody who complained about Sebastian being a minstrel? Uh, not in any contemporary reviews I came across, at least in reference to The Lion King, I'd have to save that for a Little Mermaid video. Okay, because let me tell you, going to see the Little Mermaid play on stage with uh, Sylvan and our sister Cheryl, oh boy, is that bit uncomfortable. And in the movie, I was never bothered by it. But oh boy, the minstrelness of Sebastian in the stage play is a lot. I mean, if we're going to talk about lazy, hurtful ethnic stereotypes in Disney movies, I don't think the first step would be the Disney Renaissance. <laughs> no, probably not. I, I, I think they're mostly harmless. I can see how some people would uh, find them to be condescending and so on. Uh, however, I mean, if, we, if we're going to pick our battles, I wouldn't start with the hyenas and the Lion King. No. I think they're mostly funny. I don't think that they had bad intentions, which isn't necessarily uh, a uh, free pass. Yeah, that's not necessarily a free pass. But we can we we, we can do worse than the hyenas and the Lion King. And we have done worse. Yes. At the same time, uh, the portrayal of the hyenas as uh, as villains did get some complaints from conservationists. You know, getting back to how um, the hyenas are apparently not a part of the circle of life. <laughs> well. So, in in defense of the right, they needed some kind of minions, right? Right? They need some kind of minions to do Scar's bidding. Um, and also, the, the, the logic in the movie is that the hyenas are insatiable, and they will, you know, if given a food source, un, unlimited, right? Then they'll just eat it out of oblivion, and that's... You say, like, oh, it's magic, and there's bad weather, and whatever, but also part of that is the hyenas fucking ate everything, because the lions are all starving. Like, Sarabi sends Nala off to the furthest part of the desert to find food, and and then ends up accidentally reuniting her with Simba, because they're running out of food. And I thought it was nifty. This is actually where I learned that fact when I was five years old. That the females are the ones who will go out and hunt. I didn't know that. Oh, I yeah. I'd never learned that in school yet, but that's because, you know, the movie was five when I came out, so we hadn't really covered that fact yet. But the hyenas have eaten everything out of Pride Rock. The most unbelievable part and the most magical part is that everything somehow comes back in the end when there's only conceivably maybe a year between Scar's death and Simba's child's birth. Yeah, I'm not sure how long lion pregnancies last, but let's give it a year. Yeah, that's like an entire ecosystem isn't going to recover from, you know, absolute devastation from an invasive species, if that's what we're going to call the hyenas, you know, in a year. I mean, that being said, hyenas don't act that way in the wild. Scavengers are a natural part of nature. Any biologist will tell you that. Based on the uh, complaints I've read from conservationalists, I'm under the impression that some of them were being a bit cheeky about it. <laughs> uh, that makes it better, though. I mean, it, it, it says something about the dictatorial nature of Mufasa, that Scar didn't win over the hyenas to his side by promising them, like, power or authority. He promised them food. That's all it took. Yep, yep. 
And I mean, it's arguable, right, that Mufasa, like, wasn't starving the hyenas, right? Like, he was just limiting their food supply because in the universe of the Lion King, they'll eat until, they're they're basically like dogs. They'll eat until they throw up and then they'll eat the throw up, right? Like, that's what the hyenas, that's the impression they give you of the hyenas in the Lion King universe. And they're fairly, there's, there's a lot of them, like, a lot. Like, that scene where, you know, Scar is singing his song and they're just, like, jumping around and, like, getting exploded on those little like volcano type thingies like Mm -hmm. there's like easy a hundred of them just in that cave alone and they're all alive in the sahara desert like they're fine they might be a little hungry but they're alive so he's still sending like wildebeests and zebras and shit their way he's just like rationing it so that they don't destroy everything i mean if you're gonna be generous to mufasa if you're gonna be generous to mufasa okay moving on uh let's talk about the various uh sequels spinoffs and so on at, at this point uh disney was still averse to direct theatrical sequels to their successful films i think the thinking was it'll take at least two possibly four to five years to make a to make a sequel on the same level as the theatrical release and at that point the kids will have aged out of it that is clearly not true Spongebob has been on the air for like 20 goddamn years now they made Frozen 2 like six years after the first one and it made just as much money as the last one maybe slightly more I think mm-hmm. but at the time it was considered a little gauche so there was a Disney afternoon show starring Timon and Pumbaa that I think people remember fondly although I'd never remember myself being all that crazy about it I haven't watched that one I have I'm not sure what year Lion King one half came out, but I do remember watching it on VHS and being delighted that it wasn't terrible. Yeah, I heard that Lion King 2 isn't that great, but Lion King 1 and a half is the fun one, because it's basically like what Timon and Poober are up to like in between the scenes of the Lion King, which yeah. sounds like a fun premise. Yeah, and it's Nathan Lane and who's the actor that plays that voices Pumbaa? I can't remember his name. I'm totally blanking on him. I'm sorry, Pumbaa. I'm sorry, Pumbaa. I love you so much. But it's it's basically them just, like, riffing on the original Lion King. Like, there are parts where they just, like, pause. And Timon's mom is fantastic. I think it, I think it might be Angela Lansbury, actually. I, I can't remember. I'd have to look it up. But it's, it's delightful. There's a really great song about digging tunnels because he starts off living with his meerkat family. And then he has to, you know, it's, it's basically how Timon and Puma end up together. And then how they end up finding a, a baby lion and deciding to keep it. And then, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a joke about how, like, I'm going to walk over this bridge for the rest of my life, which, you know, in the original movie, that's how they show the time passing for Simba growing up. They walk over a bridge, and as they walk over the bridge, Simba slowly slowly gets bigger and grows more fur. Um, It's just really fun. It's really campy. It knows what it is, and it accepts what it is. Lion King 2 and all of the other spinoffs are really lame and just not fun. Yeah, in terms of uh, cheapo brand ex- extensions, The Lion King probably fared better than most of the other ones, because there are at least a few decent ones. Like, none of the Beauty and the Beast ones are very good, none of the Aladdin ones are very good. Mulan 2 is arguably the worst one. Oh, Mulan 2 is such a disappointment. You want it to be good, and it's just not. Then there's the stage musical, which is one of the longest-running ones in Broadway history, with elaborate puppets and sets and stuff, and is in some ways transcended the original film. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a big spectacle, and uh, if you're taking your grandma to Broadway, you're probably going to see either that or Phantom. It's on my list. I would love to see it because, I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen any of like the viral videos of the cast just like on the subway singing, but like it's fantastic. 
And one other thing we need to bring up is the is the video game that was made for the Super Nintendo and the Sega Genesis. There are a couple of games, but this is the most prominent, and it's considered one of the best Disney video games, like up there with the Aladdin one. I only have very, very vague memories of it because we did not own a Super Nintendo. And we didn't have it for the Genesis. And so I, I think our cousins owned it. Mm-hmm. And so I remember a couple of the levels, and mainly it was me watching you guys play it, like you and, and Kurt and Pat. I, I don't really remember it very well. Um, I mean, it's a platformer on a similar way as like as the Aladdin or the Jungle Book game. Mm. It, it, it's very playable. The graphics are beautiful. Uh, I believe Disney either made it itself or contracted it out to someone else with the animation crew overseeing them in order to make sure that you know everything looks good. That makes sense. Yeah, but in, t- in terms of licensed properties turned into video games, Lion King's one of the best ones. Not that that's saying much. No. When you bring up the animation and, like, you know, the graphics and stuff, it just makes me think of, do you remember that Rugrats game that we had that we loved so, so much, but the graphics were so, so bad? I mean, uh, they weren't bad by the standards of a PlayStation 1 game. No, but but we loved that game. We did, yeah. Can't put this off any longer. Let's talk about the 2019 CGI remake. Okay, so I'm going to start with, I went into this movie with, extremely limited, low expectation. Now, I understand other people did not. I love The Lion King. It is my favorite Disney movie. I will watch it, as I've said, hundreds and hundreds of times and never, ever, ever get tired of it. I don't think it needed a remake. I think it's fine as itself. I wasn't too impressed with the Beauty and the Beast remake. I was excited for that one. I had a lot of expectations. Didn't like it. So I went in and The Lion King CGI re- version, it's all right. It's it's fine. The lions are weird. They have no, they're so realistic that there's no facial expression to the point where it's hard for the actors to carry that in just their voice. I, that's the main complaint I hear about it. I haven't actually seen it, so I'm just kind of hoping that you'll carry the rest of this through. The The voice acting is pretty good. I mean, Timon and Pumbaa are great. You know, the hyenas, they do a really good job with them. The voice acting, there's nothing wrong with the voice acting, right? Beyonce kind of phones it in, which is to be expected because she didn't, from what I understand, she didn't really, like, record with anybody. (laughs) Like, she did her bit and then just was done. My biggest complaints about the remake are two things. The first is my favorite villain song, Be Prepared. They cut it to shreds, so it's maybe half as long. That's probably generous. It's maybe a third as long. And as our sister Cheryl said, it's flat soda. It, it's just flat. It's It has no emotion. It has no, there's no, you know, build up. You're, it's hard to follow up Jem- Jeremy Irons, right? Like he's just so good. But come on, man. Like that's such a good song and it's so powerful and you're just, you know, the be prepared. Like nothing. There's no crescendo. It's just boring. It's flat soda. My other main complaint is that Can You Feel the Love Tonight, sung by Donald Glover and Beyonce. So it should be good, right? Should be great. Again, it's just kind of flat. And can you tell me, Ryan, when is this song supposed to take place? Well, since you gave me that straight line, I'll respond with, since it's called Can You Feel the Love Tonight, it should be tonight. Yes, it is daytime. The entire song. It is fluorescently bright for the entire song. And they say tonight, maybe like 10, if not more times in the song. And the whole time, it's bright as fuck. Bright, clear blue skies. It's not even dusk. It's not starting to turn into night. It's just 
daytime. There's no reason for it. No fucking reason. There's no reason. And then, because at the end of Can You Feel the Love Tonight, right? And she runs off and whatever. And then he goes and he has to see his dad in the night sky and the big cloud. All of a sudden, it's fucking night. All of a sudden. It's like, it's, it's, that's not how day works. That's not how light works. That's not how the sun sets. What the fuck? It's bullshit. I mean, I know it's not supposed to be a super realistic film because, you know, talking lions, but there need to be rules in your universe, no matter how ridiculous it is. If your movie is about space unicorns, the space unicorn universe has laws and the space unicorns have to consistently adhere to them. And you know what? If nighttime is bright as day, like is it is, like it is in, you know, Midsummer, that, you know, that creepy horror movie, fine, fine. But then your daytime should be nighttime. Switch it up. Be consistent, goddammit. I think Cheryl's complaint about flat soda kind of epitomizes the whole live-action Disney remake thing as a whole. Because most of them are pretty pointless uh, in terms of an artistic standpoint. Uh, they're basically there because the people who watched these movies when they were five are now in their 30s. And they want to vicariously live aspects of their childhood with their kids. And now you can sell two tickets that way. I mean, that's almost clearly the reason why these films exist. Yeah, I mean, just, just, just show your kids. The, they have it all. It's all on Disney Plus now. You don't even have to wait for them to take shit out of the vault. Just show them the real movie. I mean, I'd like to think that no matter how mediocre a film is, the people who worked on it are professionals and they're trying to make a good movie. And that that isn't shown in any of the Disney, live action Disney remakes, which look very expensive. And it looks like, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of people spent lots of hours working very hard, but they're still flat soda. They're so flat. So flat. I mean, that's saying like everybody claims to hate these things, but somebody's buying tickets to them. They wouldn't keep making them if they they weren't, you know, making any money. I've seen two of them. I'm part of the problem. I'm aware of it. We're probably going to see Mulan. Mulan looks pretty good, though. Like, I mean, like, I, I did just say that I was really excited for Beauty and the Beast and that I was incredibly disappointed. But Mulan does look like they're giving it a fresh take. So I'm, I'm hesitantly optimistic about Mulan. I had zero expectations for The Lion King. I'm glad I saw it, but I'm never going to watch it again. Yeah, the ones that people seem to like are the uh, Cinderella one, the Jungle Book one, which do seem to, like, try to expand or change things up based on the source material. Hmm. I mean, that being said, a lot of people have theorized that the reason these films exist is some kind of, like, copyright extension scheme, which I've looked it up and no copyright lawyer I've encountered both asking in person or reading about it online would say, no, that has nothing to do with it. Disney isn't going to own Snow White any longer if they make a live-action Snow White remake in 2021. Mm. Public domain law isn't going to affect it one way or the other. So, yeah, the only reasons these movies are, are exist in any capacity is because people keep buying tickets to them. That's it. Now, to uh, get back to one thing before we leave, asking someone when the Disney Renaissance ends if they're a Disney nerd is kind of a nebulous question. Some people say that it ends with Pocahontas, which I think is a little premature. Some people will go all the way to the Emperor's New Groove or uh, Fantasia 2000, which I think is way too far. I really like the Emperor's New Groove. I wouldn't call it a Disney Renaissance film. I wouldn't call it a Disney Renaissance film. It's hard for me 
to strictly remember the order that the movies came out into because this is just childhood to me, right? This is just, you know, The Little Mermaid came out the year I was born. Beauty and the Beast came out, what, 92, 93? Uh, I, I, I want to say 92 because yeah. uh, Aladdin was 93. Aladdin was 93. Lion King was 94. So, you know, those those are like my core anchor movies for the Disney Renaissance. And that's the first like five years of my childhood. So those are the movies that I was watching over and over and over again. I kind of forget what came after The Lion King. Um, Pocahontas was the next one <sighs> Pocahontas is all right it's it's definitely I would definitely still put it in the renaissance it is beautiful it has decent music it's not the best music I mean to be fair they did lose one of their best lyricists midway through Aladdin so that's part of it one thing I do want to touch upon is like inarguably the Lion King is when the Disney renaissance crested yes it, it went down after that absolutely what and after uh, Pocahontas? I think it was the Hunchback of Notre Dame Okay, that's another one that's good, but it's still not as good as, like, The Lion King or anything that came before it. One thing that marks The Lion King is that immediately afterwards, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who a lot of people say is one of the primary engineers of the Disney Renaissance, split with Disney acrimoniously after he competed for a higher-up position that he felt he deserved after shepherding The Little Mermaid, The Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, and The Aladdin into theaters and having them be big hits. After he left, he founded DreamWorks. So if you're wondering why Shrek has so much bitter anti-Disney stuff in it and why um, Lord Farquaad is mean caricature of Michael Eisner, that's why. <laughs> I love that one. And Katzenberg will very, very bitterly say to this day that Disney Renaissance ended when he left the company. Everything they did afterwards is crap. I mean, it definitely declines in quality. I, I do think some of that was just them going back to the well. I don't think DreamWorks has too many bulletproof classics. No, no, that is that is absolutely true. And like I said, too, it has to do with the lyricist, you know, because uh, Tim Rice didn't work on Hunchback, did he? No, nah, he might have. I don't, I don't think, think so. I don't think he worked on, um, on Pocahontas either. With him and Howard Ashman gone, you know, uh, Howard Ashman's lyrics for Beauty and the Beast and, you know, Little Mermaid and then parts of Aladdin, you can definitely tell that, you know, those aren't aspects in The Lion King, but Tim Rice makes up for it because he was such a good lyricist himself. And I, I, I do think it's fair to say that the remainder of Disney's 90s output is, is mostly composed of lesser films. I know that all of them are somebody's favorite. There are people who are really into Hercules. There are people who are really into Mulan. And I like Mulan, but it's not as good as Beauty and the Beast of the Lion King. No, I like Hercules and Mulan as well. Um, I I wouldn't say... I mean, Hercules is probably still in the Disney Renaissance. Mulan... I'd say it's a I'd say it's a close edge. You know, Mulan is Mulan is pretty good. If if you like Mulan, then you probably would include it at the Disney Renaissance. Um, I think the biggest complaint about Hercules that I have is just why the hell did they pick gospel music? Uh, I, I think there's more to talk about, but that's for a Hercules. That's uh, for uh, that podcast. is for a Hercules one. You know, I I do really enjoy Hercules. I still watch it. You know, and I still listen. I mean, I have a whole Disney playlist on Spotify that I just cycle through sometimes for fun. So I'm, I'm a '90s kid. It is what it is. Well, this one ran pretty long. Is there uh, anything else that you would like to um, mention about The Lion King before we close things out? Just that if you haven't somehow in your life watched it, you really should. Even if you aren't a big cartoon watcher, even if you aren't a big Disney fan, it holds up. Even though it was made back in 1994 and, you know, it's it's got some, some issues, it holds up really well. The music is really great. And if the only interpretation of The Lion King you've seen is the 2019 remake, you need 
need to see the better version. You poor Zoomer. You need to see the better version. It, it does a lot of things so well that it makes it look easy. And I think this is just sort of showcased in how Mulan and Hercules and Hunchback of Notre Dame and most of the other like later 90s ones are checking all of the same boxes and following the exact same formula and plugging things into the same template and it doesn't work quite as well. There's just something that The Lion King does that those other ones don't. It's a pretty magical movie. All right. Well, I guess that's about it. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for joining me, Sarah. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Good night, everybody. Bye, guys.